Good morning and welcome. Thank you for joining us if you're online as well. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Anytime we open the Bible, we should expect that we'll be taught something quite different than our world or the culture would teach us. Uh, We've been learning already in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy about false teaching and the reality that Satan is always inserting his lies into the world, and then sometimes through false teaching, it also uh, seeps into the church. So in our passage today, in which God says that the roles of men and women are different in the church we could expect that the world might not agree. There is obviously a lot of confusion and controversy in our culture over issues of gender and sexual identity, etc. This passage doesn't address all those issues, but it does clearly describe different roles, different function, particularly, specifically in this passage, uh, in the church. In fact, some of what we read today might even hit us a bit controversial, but God cares very much that we both know and honor his design for the beautiful distinctions, the the wonderful differences between men and women in the church. So I'm going to read the whole passage so that we can all swallow hard together, and then we'll work our way through it. Verse 8, first of all, addresses men, and then 9 begins with a section on women. I want want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So we're just going to move on to chapter (laughs) 3. No. um, What do you suppose would happen if this was read like on live TV? Uh, Public television maybe, or um, late night show, or The View? Uh, I think it would erupt, social media would erupt. But seriously, last week we saw in chapter 3, verses 14, the theme of this letter of Paul to Timothy leading the church in Ephesus. And he said that we, the local church, are representing the living God on earth. That's what the church does. It's how the world can actually see what God and his design, and his will really is. Chapter 3, verse 15 calls us, the church, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And so if we're going to represent to the world why this is a good design, and this is indeed God's plan, it needs to happen here. It needs to happen in, in our attitudes, in our function together as men and women in the church. So this passage, with some, a few words to men and then a lot more words to women, is, is describing basically this concept that godly men in the church will, des, will embrace God's design for them as and if they humble themselves before God in prayer, lifting holy hands in prayer. And women will embrace God's design for them in the church as they follow Godly men. 
Now, in this passage, we see one verse for men and then, what, seven for women, but that perceived imbalance, of course, is addressed because when we continue this study into chapter 3, all of chapter 3 is pinpointed with uh, really man on the hot seat then. Uh, this section at the end of chapter 2 and again chapter 3 basically is telling us that elders and deacons, pastors who teach in the church should be men, not women. And understandably, knowing our culture, that can seem repulsive to many to make that distinction. And of course, the idea of women being submissive is repulsive. And sadly, too often, the reason it repulses the world is because perhaps too many men have seized on some of these principles, misusing them to excuse a demanding domineering attitude, sometimes even abusive attitude towards women. And I've talked to men who have destroyed their marriages, taking that kind of self-centered misuse of some of the principles, whether it's in this passage in the church or uh, Ephesians 5 addressing the same principles in the home and marriage. That's why verse 8 is so important, because really, if men understood and applied verse 8, it, it resolves that attitude problem, that sin problem of misusing this, because it says that we must be men who pray. This is, of course, coming out of our study last week, where it was all about praying, and then he says specifically, men, if you're going to be leaders, you need to lead by being prayerful. In fact, it says to lift holy hands in prayer, not telling us that we have to use that posture, but, but he, in the Hebrew culture of the Old Testament, and, and most many of these were Jews, that was just what they did. They'd lift their hands because lifting hands in prayer was their way of indicating submission to God. And so you see, the first issue for us as men is that we would be submissive to God, humble, and do you suppose that most Christian women would willingly follow a humble Christian man characterized by the, the issues in this verse? They are prayerful, pure, and peacemaking. It really changes everything when the attitude is directed in humility before God, which is accomplished through prayer. So, if God indeed has designed us as men to lead spiritually, it means we have to acknowledge a, a helplessness, not a selflessness, a selfishness. A helplessness before God, because if we're going to be spiritual leaders, we are going to quickly confront the fact that we are weak in our sinful flesh, and so we are dependent upon God to be anything like the character he calls us to have. And we will find that if, if we are leading spiritually in our home, we are helpless to, to have an impact. And God designed us that we would want to initiate and have an impact. We are helpless to have an impact on our kids spiritually because we can't manipulate their heart. We try. But we find ourselves in dependence on God to have an impact on our kids. We will find ourselves helpless and dependent upon God if we're going to have an impact spiritually on our wife. We can't make them follow me, submit to me. That, that, that's, a, that's a prescription for, for disaster to try to make them do what God has asked them to do out of the willingness of their heart. And so, as men, if we're going to lead, we're going to have to find ourselves in humble submission before God. Leadership starts on our knees. So the real question here for us men is, are we men characterized by prayer? And if so, when is it that you pray? Where? How? What's, what's, what is your prayer plan so that you can be the leader that God designed you to be spiritually in your home and in the church? Lifting holy hands in prayer, the, the word holy is, is significant here. So godly men pray, godly men are pure. 
This is not the common Greek word for holy in the New Testament. This is a more rare term used only seven times. The idea of this word holy is really more about what is not there. Holy otherwise is about the purity that is there. This is about what needs to be eliminated. Um, Lack of stain, lack of blemish. It is that to be holy, we have to address those things that would stain our character men. Holiness means moral purity. In a world that is luring us constantly in our eyes and our heart. Holiness means integrity in a world that is taunting us to get ahead, really at any ethical cost. Holiness means that we men address sins of attitude in our relationships. And this is often most critical because sins of attitude are often invisible to ourselves. It's the things that others know about us generally that we hardly recognize. And yet God's word says that these relational sins, specifically in marriage, are key to our prayers. First Timothy, or rather First Peter 3, 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. It's a fascinating verse deserving a lot of full study but notice this main point we need to be sensitive because we don't want we want nothing to hinder our prayers this is this is pretty important because our prayer effect so if we're going to be leaders we have to be effective in prayer but if we're going to be effective in prayer it depends upon our sensitivity if we're married to our wife so that's a sobering self-exam that points us back to passages like Ephesians 5, man, that says, Husbands, love your wife, cherish, nourish, care like Christ loves the church, sacrificing. And we go, oh. So prayer is the first and biggest deal for us to be spiritual leaders, but we could sabotage our prayer life if we are insensitive in our relationships. This verse 8 also addresses an area of strength in men that can become a detriment and a temptation for us when it says, without anger or disputing. Pray with holiness, but without anger or disputing. And the context here is specifically in the church family. Why? Why is he bringing up anger and disputing about men? One of our built-in strengths as men is, uh, is physical strength and uh, in many ways emotional strength. And we need that to lead strongly, to lead well. God gave us more testosterone as, as men so that uh, we can do well in wars and we can break the sod as pioneers. We play defensive linemen and we open pickle jars. <laughs> so we tend to be more competitive and aggressive. We have this will to win and overcome. And uh, sometimes it gets us in trouble relationally, right? Uh, men are more re- men are responsible for just a few more bar fights probably than women, right? When does this will to win and overcome become a detriment, get us in trouble? It's when it is self-centered. Whenever it's self-centered, instead of using it as a way to bless, it now becomes a curse and a temptation. And so... It also happens verbally, is the observation that Paul makes to Timothy. So if you're going to be a man of prayer in leadership of your home or the church or wherever, your hands have to be pure. You pursue this holiness before God, and you're really going to have to watch 
your mouth. That you are not angry and disputing with your emotional strength. Not cause offense, loud outbursts, hurt feelings all around. Because maybe especially as men, we do not easily back down from our opinions. We make great leaders when we capitalize on the strengths that God has equipped us with, but we will mess things up quickly if we are easily angered and arguing. So leadership starts with submitting to God in prayer. And as we are humbling ourselves before God, we actually lead very well in our blessing. So women, it's your turn. And uh, while, women, while men in the church need to humble themselves in prayer to embrace God's design for them in leading, uh, women, this godly women in the church will embrace God's design as they follow, as they follow godly men. So kind of as a way of introduction, just want to kind of discuss some of the current culture wars about men and women, uh, because not really what's going on out there, but really what's happening within churches. In fact, if you even just watch the news, the religious news, uh, there are many what I would consider good denominations who are uh, kind of battling this issue about whether women can be ordained as pastors, and then, uh, of course, that also addresses whether they can serve as elders and deacons. And so um, among the church world, and even, I would say, evangelical church world that would say we believe the Bible and are seeking to follow the Bible, uh, there is this, this struggle, and I just want to introduce you to two terms, uh, two views about gender roles in the church, and uh, it also affects what the Bible says about the home. And these two terms are complementarianism and egalitarianism. And it's okay if those are new words, but I think they are rather simple in concept. I'm going to use some definitions by an, art an article by Alyssa Root in Christianity Today. Here's the view of complementarianism. It is that although men and women are equal in personhood, and this is, this is, a, this is thinking biblically now, they are created for different roles. But there is another view we could call to, uh, egalitarianism. Men and women are equal in personhood, but there are no gender-based limitations on the roles of men and women. So you see the, the basic difference. And the word complementary means to, that, that, the, that the genders complete one another. And egalitarian is more about emphasizing they're equal to each other. So when I teach the uh, welcome class several times a year, and we go through our church doctrine and constitution, of course, we come across uh, the, what is obvious, that at Open Door Bible Church, we do not ordain women, and we do not have women serving on our uh, church board, which compri is comprised of elders and deacons, and that sometimes is surprising uh, to people. But what is clear is that we, as, as a church, by our biblical conviction, are complementarians in our, in our perspective. And this passage in 1 Timothy, as well as chapter 3, describing uh, men and women, is, is key to that. So it means that uh, men and women are complementing manhood, provide something that womanhood does not, womanhood provides something that manhood does not. And it goes really back to Eve in the book of Genesis, who is called this term the suitable helper. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, this is in creation, this is the second chapter of the Bible, it is not good for the man to be alone, because Adam he had created already, I will make a helper suitable for him. And that term is Kind of people react to that. You know, what does that mean? She's the maid. Um, what does it mean to be a helper suitable? It is, does not mean that, by the way, just in case some, anybody takes a clip of this. Uh, it means that she is a complementary part of the marriage. It is not an emotion. It is not a put down. In fact, the term 
Okay, then it says Genesis 2.22, the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken from the man. This term, helper, is used mostly of God in the Old Testament. This exact Hebrew term is, is when Israel was in trouble and needed help, they called upon God the helper. That's the term used to describe woman. The idea in those contexts is that Israel needed help. They needed something they didn't have and God could supply that. And that's exactly how it works in marriage. Womanhood supplies something that manhood does not have. And so it's a, you, you are helpers, lady, in that sense. You provide a strength men do not have. And a suitable strength, which basically that term is just means corresponding or, or, or matching. It means similar, but in a different way. And it means that it completes or it com- complements the strength of man. It's like matching pieces in a, in a puzzle. So complementarity means we believe that God indeed created man and woman in his image, both men and women in his image. God said, Genesis 1, let us make man in our own image, meaning humanity, because in the next verse says, and so he created them male and female, both being in his image, but meant to complement. And the differences then that God designed between men and women are that which in God's wisdom he knew would be best for society, best for the home, best for the church. It would bring the strengths of each into all of these vital core parts of God's plan for the church and family on earth. Uh, By the way, this discussion, this kind of parenthetical observation, this discussion of complementarianism and this uh, understanding of scripture does not necessarily apply to all business and politics. Um, In other words, you can agree with what we've just explained that men and women will biblically have different roles in the home and the church. Those are the areas specifically addressed in Scripture. You could agree with that, and you might still vote for a woman that you believe would be best for a political office. And if you are in the business world, biblically, you follow whoever is your manager, owner, CEO, or whatever it might be. Uh, And so this is not necessarily about business leadership or political leadership, in my opinion. So, God designed us as men to lead in a sense that our greatest strengths would be used, but the warning was in verse 8, our strong personalities have to be under God's control and not self-centered or we'll sabotage our leadership. Likewise, we'll see that some of the strengths of women are also something that have to be brought under the Spirit's control so that they are indeed a strength. The first one is the issue of modesty. <clears throat> I want women, now verse 9, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or clothes or pearls or expensive clothes, but, meaning but clothed with, using it as a metaphor, clothed with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. What is the strength of women here? I'll just say it. Women, you are better looking than men. Okay? And all God's men said, Amen. Here's my, here's my very unscientific observation. A beautiful woman walks by, and both men and women notice. Just about any guy can walk by, and nobody notices. I don't know. That's just my observation. Unless he has blue hair or something like that. Beauty is a strength. Now, I want to say that carefully because not to imply that beauty is the key strength or the only strength of the feminine gender. Uh, You have greater relational sensitivity. You have greater nurturing capacity. I saw a study this week um, that shows that women in leadership positions, it's a business study, but have a collaborative style typically 
that is more effective in, in quite a few different kinds of uh, positions. So there's many strengths, but beauty is a strength. So how could beauty become a detriment, specifically here in the church, if it's self-centered? I mean, that was a deal with men's strength, right? If, if a man's physical or emotional strength is going to become a detriment, it's because it's self-centered. And so if a woman's beauty is going to become a detriment, it's if it's self-centered when it becomes vanity. So dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or expensive clothes. Yeah, we'll get to all of that. First of all, there are, there are three terms, and these, these three terms, uh, you're going to have it, whatever translation you might be looking at right now, is going to look just a little bit different. Uh, there's a lot of overlap in these words, but yet there is some distinction, I think. The first one, modestly, proper, or respectable, respectable is really about what's appropriate uh, for the situation, appropriate for the, the, the time even. There was a time, of course, 1800s, early 1900s, when uh, revealing your ankles, ladies, was considered immodest, and I think we all agree that no longer is the issue. So this biblical statement, I think, falls under the realm of, of conviction, and convictions are somewhat impacted uh, by the, the, the culture, but of course not completely because every woman must reckon with what does this principle mean then that you not draw attention to yourself. And that's the bottom line here, is it seems that the modesty is so that, particularly in worship, right, it's that appropriate for women who profess to worship God, that you would not draw attention to yourselves but instead to your service and worship, or, and in the worship setting particularly. This does not tell women to pride yourselves, I guess, in how plain and simple you can look. Uh, burlap is still not in style, to my knowledge. Maybe it is. It has to be appropriate so that your strength, your beauty is a strength and not a detriment. And so you might be saying, well, what should I wear? I don't know. It's a tension you need to deal with, just as a man has to deal with the tension of how can I be a strong leader without being offensive? It's a struggle, right? You got to, you're going to have to pursue God's wisdom. How do, I, how do I be strong without being offensive? And ladies, you need to deal with the, the tension of how do I be beautiful as God designed me without being a detriment of offensive or immodest, distracting. Second term, decent or propriety, is a word indicating restraint. In other words, you have an attitude of being willing to limit yourselves. I could do this to attract attention and impress, but I won't. The third term, discreet, modest, or self-control, is somewhat focused on the idea of wisdom. The idea of having Uh, wisdom. This would probably be where the application to uh, moral or being uh, sensitive to the the sensual kind of aspects of modesty would be appropriate. I am the proud father of four beautiful daughters who get their looks from their mom. I I figured it out this week. I had teenage daughters for 16 years. 2001 to 2017, three at a time sometimes. Uh, 2017, the fourth young man said, I do, standing here, and uh, had the privilege of, of, of officiating at all four of those weddings. And I, uh, I cried a little, and I, uh, I smiled a little because some things were no longer my problem. Seriously, they really weren't a, uh, a problem, but I did care, and I did have a protective sense about me about, in terms of what, guys, what kind of guys would our beautiful daughters attract in that sense. Just this past week, a, a humorous song was released by Matthew West. Matthew West is one of my favorite Christian song artists anyhow, and the song was called Modest is hottest. Anybody watch that song video? Yeah, just a couple, okay. 
It's a funny satire on himself, really, about because he has two teenage daughters, and it's a, kind of a funny satire. Uh, a key line in the lyrics is, Modest is hottest, the latest fashion trend. A little more Amish, a little less Kardashian. <laughs> he, he was really poking fun, I think, at his own uh, uh, protective uh, nature concerning his daughters. Well, here's the interesting rest of the story. It went viral, and it created a huge backlash on social media. Because he dared, through this humorous satire, to promote modesty. Because our current culture assumes that to even discuss modesty is to blame women for what some men do. And that's not what the Bible is saying at all. But the Bible is saying to dress modestly, addressing that to women, and then the Bible does address men about what they... It doesn't take us off the hook at all. addresses the lust issue. So there is, there is nothing here that would be unbiblical to promote modesty, but it created such a backlash, and you can agree with this or not, but Matthew West took the song down. He, he released on Twitter, he says, My intent was not to create a controversy, a storm. I just wanted to, in a humorous way, discuss and encourage families about modesty. It was a satire. Do you think there's not a battle between what God's Word said and what the culture is going to say that is going to feed into our minds the exact opposite of what God's Word says? Braided hair gold and pearls, and costly garments. Costly garments. Next week, we want you to bring receipts, ladies. <laughs> that was satire, by the way. We'd have an all-men's meeting, I think. A first-century Jewish writer used these terms of jewelry and makeup and so forth to uh, describe a prostitute because uh, they were doing whatever they could to draw or attract attention to themselves to turn men's heads. And the point of Paul here is that we should, women should dress in such a way to draw attention to God and not self. We come here to adore God, not to admire each other, not to be admired or adored. And it's not my business, it's not going to be the church's business in any way to establish a dress code, but I think it's every Christian woman's business to consider this principle. And I think open-door women do very well at this. Instead, here's the, the positive side of the coin, be adorned, if you will, be dressed with good works, be notable for that. If they're producing a TV commercial and a, and, a, and a woman's on the screen, they're either trying to communicate you know, beauty or sweetness or, or maybe sensual or, or aggressiveness or whatever it might be that they're selling. What are we selling, if you will? What are we promoting? What are we demonstrating to the world? We're demonstrating what it means to be Christ-like in service. And so this would be true of men and women. But women, service is always in style. So your love, your concern for others, does it draw people to God? Is that, is that what you would be known for and followed for? That I want to be like her because I see the good deeds that have come from her faith. Open Door has a lot of women who serve in good works. I could list some that I observed just this week and through the years it's a tremendous testimony. So don't buy into the world's lie that your worth depends upon your outward appearance. Your worth depends upon your heart, and a godly service, serving heart is always beautiful, always priceless, always in style. Wear that to church. Well, if discussing women's clothing wasn't controversial enough, the uh, next issue is what takes us to the heart of complementarianism. 
verse 11 and 12, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. This silence, and the word, by the way, it's used twice in verse, uh, once in verse 11, once in verse 12. It's, whether it's quiet or silent, it's the same uh, Greek term. And it does not mean silent in an absolute sense. It is referring to this specific thing about teaching in the church setting, in a mixed church setting. One time I was driving uh, and caught part of a call-in program to Wisconsin Public Radio, and uh, the guest was a woman from an organization that promotes the ordination of women pastors. And she made this comment, I jotted it down later just approximately, Evidently, literalists who do not allow women to be ordained as pastors do not consider them to be fully human, which, of course, is not the truth. But I assume she, by literalist, was referring to those of us who believe in the fall of the Bible, including this passage, and she obviously felt down, put down by these verses. So what does it mean to learn in quietness in the church? Uh, something that is often lost because we don't often uh, study the, the background culturally in which Scripture was written. One thing that's not often understood is that this is actually a huge step up for women, as Paul said this, what might seem the opposite to us, because educational settings in, in, in Judaism were a man thing. And so the idea of women learning really at all would have been radical, and so he is saying, it's not that way in the church. Women should be there. We should be learning together, and that's a good thing. Paul also made this radical statement in Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there, is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Of course, that doesn't mean that Paul didn't understand the, uh, the distinctions but he's saying that spiritually, there is complete equality. God has no prejudice based on race or gender or anything else. And so we should see one another as spiritual equals. So God having a, a, an order of leadership does not mean unequal in any sense, spiritually. And Paul was actually not telling women as I mentioned, to be silent in an absolute sense, even in the church. 1 Corinthians 11 uh, describes women praying and prophesying in church, and there's no rebuke on them for praying and prophesying, though there's, there's, there's clarifications and limitations that, that in, in 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, 14 about a lot of areas of church life, but it wasn't that they shouldn't pray or prophesy in church. But he simply says they should not exercise authority over men by teaching God's word in mixed church settings. And so that is why uh, sermons from here uh, in this setting or uh, the teachers in our adult Bible fellowships or, or mixed Bible studies is led by men here. Outside of mixed church settings, women should teach God's word. In fact, Acts 18.26, uh, one time when Apollos was being a really effective teacher but was, had some things wrong, it says that Priscilla and Aquila, this married couple, drew him aside and, and at home they, they corrected him. It says they, plural, they, Priscilla and Aquila, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more accurately or adequately. In fact, with Priscilla's name being mentioned first, it's possibly that, that she was leading this discussion in the home, perhaps even more. I know someone named Priscilla has taught me many things that I would not have otherwise known. Paul, in Titus 2, verse 4, tells older women, teach the younger women. You're the best equipped to do that. 2 Timothy 3.14, Timothy was taught as a child by his mother and grandmother in the home. Uh, women, you are teachers. You are some of the most gifted teachers 
of Scripture. This passage does not muzzle your teaching gifts. It's simply saying that God says to reserve this setting when the whole church is gathered uh, in mixed company for men to teach. I was trying to think practically before we get to the, the biblical foundation of this. I was trying to think practically this week that one of the values of God's word saying this and requiring men to take the lead in teaching is, I wonder if it wasn't in there, we would become passive and just let the women do it all. You know, you're better at it. You got better uh, verbal skills or whatever it might be. You just do it all. But uh, gratefully, God's word has put the pressure on us men to be uh, teachers as well, so we don't get lazy and passive. Uh, Paul tracks this, however, back to creation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Put that on social media. Submission in teaching is taken back to creation. Because man was created first. God created the world with order. God made, as we said, men with certain strengths. Pointed us to lead. Ephesians 5, lead lovingly, sacrificially like Christ. But lead in the home and in the church. But leadership is built into all of God's plan everywhere. I mean, anything that forms functions with leadership. So a team has a head coach, and a head coach accountable to the general manager, general manager to the owner. There's, there's always, always leadership in the world. First Corinthians 11, we're going to go, I'm just going to show you a verse there. Helps us understand, I think, what submission uh, in the genders is and is not. Uh, does it mean that women are less human as that uh, radio show guest suggested, and of course it does not. Here's, um, here's a verse that describes how headship and submission is actually modeled in the Trinity. 1 Corinthians eleven three. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. That's a little bit confusing maybe, but let's diagram it. The head of every man is Christ. Most people have a problem with that. Christ leads us as men. Then it says that men are to lead women. The head of every woman is man. Again, this is a church setting. And then it says the head of Christ is God, meaning God the Father. Does this mean that somehow Jesus is less in essence Jesus, God the Son, less than God the Father. Of course it doesn't. If we understand the doctrine of the Trinity, the triune God at all, it's that the Father, Son, and Spirit are completely co-equal in essence, but there was in the plan of God, even within the, the, the three oneness, the three and oneness of the Trinity, there was this plan in which the Son would submit himself to the Father. And the, the best example of that is the incarnation of Christ, Philippians 2.8, describing how he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so for the plan of salvation to work, the Son humbled himself to the Father to the point of death. And we could even observe that if you go to the Garden of Gethsemane before Jesus was was crucified and in his humanity Jesus prayed father possible let this cup pass from me in other words in his humanity Jesus did not desire he desired not to die on the cross but then what do you say nevertheless not my will but yours be done so you have they have this model of submission and Jesus did not become less than God by submitting to the father in fact the very next verse in Philippians tells us how that because of his submission, Jesus is exalted. Philippians 2.9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name and in heaven 
Jesus is king and exalted. In fact, I, I would anticipate that in heaven, God will likewise honor and exalt women who in submission to God first accepted God's design and stepped back and let men be accountable to lead in the home and the church. What about verse 14? Is this saying Eve is responsible for all sin when it says Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Actually, as far as I know, this is, this is the only place in Scripture where Eve is, in a sense, given any blame because universally it is Adam's sin that is accountable for the fall of the human race. And that is the issue, is that the leader is most accountable. But indeed, this is what happened, what Paul said, so in Galatians, rather Genesis 3, 6, it says, when the woman saw, this is after when Satan the serpent tempted her, and I shouldn't say her, tempted them, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, that's Adam, who was with her, and he ate it. She led Adam in sinning. But think about this. Where was Adam? What does the verse say? He was with her. It is most likely he is standing right there when she took it and gave it to him. Larry Crabb wrote a book called The Silence of Adam. Indicating that Adam, standing right there, was gifted by God to initiate, to lead spiritually. But when it really mattered, he withdrew into silence and passivity. Why didn't he say no? Adam, God said no. We're not going to do this, honey. But he said nothing, and he followed her lead in this. So there's plenty of blame to go around. But uh, except in this passage, it's always Adam who's held accountable. And it's an important principle for us men. We are held most accountable. If you're following the, the Bucks in the playoffs, there's discussion that if, if, if the Bucks don't win enough in the playoffs, guess who they're going to fire? Not the players. They're going to fire the coach, supposedly. Because leaders are accountable. And that's not to say, men, in any way that we are directly responsible if our wife or our children are in sin, but we are responsible to do all that we can to lead and model obedience to Christ. Well, if all that wasn't countercultural enough, there's one more seemingly difficult verse about God's design for women. For women, verse or rather, but women, verse 15, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. I believe that's saying that godly women will embrace their spiritual strength, particularly in the home, but it also applied to the church, as you'll see. Saved does not always mean saved eternally, saved from judgment. Uh, verse 4, the same chapter, it means, it, it means that in that context. But in this context, it probably means what it often does in Scripture, to be delivered or to be, be rescued from something. In fact, very often when you find the word delivered in the Bible, it's actually the same word as saved. But the context makes it clear that they're delivered from the enemy, delivered from the storm, delivered from something. So understanding that, that truly there's no way that that having children would save anyone spiritually. We're saved through Christ, and, and for that matter, not every woman, it's God's will that they are going to even bear children. So obviously it can't be saying that. So what is it that women are, 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 are rescued, preserved, or delivered from? It would seem in context that they are delivered from any perception of being second-rate because they've submitted themselves in the church teaching uh, setting to men. 
so that while they are excluded from the spiritual teaching role in the mixed church setting, they actually have a significant spiritual teaching role in the home. And when it says they'll be preserved or, or through childbearing, it's not talking about just the moment of birth, but this is a way of picturing the mom's impact from birth on through this child's life. Because it is, it is you, mom, who will nurture and guide and teach, and no one does it better. Most effective disciple-making, and you've heard this from Pastor Nate or myself or Seth or whoever, the most effective discipleship, make, disciple-making is not the couple of hours that your child might have in church, though we believe those to be very important to connect them to the church. The most effective disciple-making takes place in the home. And moms, typically, you have more hours. If, if the church gets a couple of hours a week, you have dozens and dozens of hours to have that spiritual impact if they continue in faith, love, and holiness. So, moms, this is, women, this is just a, a summary, really, of this passage. Continue in faith and love and holiness with propriety. Take to heart all of these principles about what it means to be a godly woman and and then you will be that, that model to your kids. And your, your influence is unlimited because it's being multiplied through this child and maybe that child and, and the impact that they will have. And you are the, 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 the one having that catalyst, that impact in their life. So God made us different, men and women. Any alien landing on earth could see that. That's satire also. I don't believe in aliens' life. But God made men and women wonderfully different. We must embrace the strengths, particularly in the church, that we could be a model to the world of God's good design. Winston Churchill once had a London editor approach him and say, I'm going to be making a, doing an article about all the significant teachers in your life and he showed him the list and Churchill said where's my mom in this list because she was the most significant influence in his life we want to honor Christ's command and it'll start as each of these do with an attitude of the heart let's pray together Father thank you for your wonderful love and brilliant design for humanity. You missed nothing. Lord, we are very well aware that in our own sinful hearts, as well as the impact of the enemy in the world, that everything about your design is confused and opposed, starting with eliminating you as the creator. And so, Lord, we stand as pillars and foundation of the truth that you have created all things. And we are accountable to you to follow you and that you have chosen to bless society, the family, the church, and then the, really the whole world through us, through your truth. Help us to be good examples of what you intended, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.